I think it was the theologians who first started the idea, later the philosophers took it over, and now some of the scientists are doing the same. What you are comes out in what you do. You see the point? Out of ourselves and into Christ, we must go. This is Chats Under the Sun with Jacob Volk. I hope you enjoy the conversation. All right. So, uh, my next book is Destiny Disrupted by Tamim Amsari. Um, this was a, uh, a book for school. Uh, it is basically a Muslim uh, who was born and raised in Afghanistan who is uh, working as a historian in the U.S., who makes an attempt to sort of tell the sort of the story of the world from the Muslim perspective to uh, make up for what he perceives as imbalances in the sort of Western uh, history telling sort of paradigm. So he would view there as being these substantial deficiencies in terms of how the massive impact of Islam on the world is sort of boiled down into footnotes and margins. And so he, he does. He, he tells the story of the world from this Muslim perspective. Of course, the entire world up until the early 7th century is in one chapter. And then in the early 7th century, uh, Muhammad becomes a prophet. And then the rest of the book is what happens after that. Um, it is a, a really well-written book. He somewhat ironically demonstrates his own mad blind spots as he tries to fulfill the deficiencies of the Western blind spots. Um, so like any, any point at which he's talking about, and this is what was going on in Christianity. This is why the Reformation was going on. You'd be like, bro, you've got no idea what you're talking about. Like you are, this is some sort of weird caricature of Christianity, but um, yeah. So one thing though, that I will give him credit for is that he understood that the lens he was telling this, uh, the story of the world through was not a perfect lens. He was like, this is what, I want Westerners to appreciate how Muslims think about the world. And yes, that's not going to actually be the most technically accurate. But I want you to see what that looks like from their perspective. So there'll be moments when this guy's, this guy is a qualified historian. And again, he works in like schools in North America. And yet he'll have moments where he'll be like, yeah, World War One broke out. And this was basically a civil war. And you're just like, in what sense was World War One a civil war? But of course, for them, it's like, oh, yes, the Europeans are fighting with each other. You know what I mean? Uh, but, huh. and so, of course, he knows better. But he's trying to give you that sense of what it was like for Muslims thinking about World War One. Just like for some of us, we're like, okay, there's conflict in the Whoa. Middle East, right? There's conflict in the Middle East. That's a substantial, uh, you yeah. know what I mean? So, so the inaccuracies actually do a, a fantastic job of, of representing how much we probably have major blind spots like for instance well, art sim- oversimplifications he's offering of early you a Islamic different history. flawed lens with which to look at it and he understands <laughs> that the lens he's offering you has like imperfections and and like its own sort of priorities and you can see that he's doing it intentionally which to my mind is actually pretty cool that's really dope actually yeah uh, again even even with that the, the man has blind spots that I don't think he's necessarily doing on purpose um, <laughs> yeah but you don't need to it still communicates the same right and but thing. but what a cool perspective to suddenly have right oh yeah so you recommend it I actually do like I think I've given you the premise so you're not gonna go ahead and be like oh, shocker this is from a Muslim perspective right like, <laughs> but yeah actually it's super well written 
Did you hear that J- that uh, Owen recommended a Muslim perspective book on Jacob's podcast? <sighs> I love how shocked we already hear World War Two described as a civil war, but then when you think <laughs> about World how, War One, yeah, sorry, oh, you're right. But either way, the, when you think about it as Europe, kind of like how we often do lump Europe together, or at least some people do. It's like, oh yeah, I can see how like in the annals of history, it could just like kind of become looked at that way. It's like, whoa, that's crazy. That's yeah. so interesting. Um, all things for good. Thomas Watson, I beat you to it. Uh, yeah, great, uh, great, uh, little Puritan paperback. Um, Thomas Watson was a Puritan, and it's just it's a really it's a it, it walks through that passage in Romans three seventeen. What is it? Romans eight twenty. Not even cl- you sure? Whatever, I'm an idiot. Um, but all things work together for good for those who um love god and walk according to his purposes and it's uh it's just a really great book it's just like in the typical puritan way he like takes an entire book to unpack a single verse and yeah it's good i don't have much to say about it. it's very encouraging it's very gentle lily-esque probably because uh dane was reading the modern puritans. day puritan yeah he was reading puritans and he knew what he was writing yeah i really enjoyed this this is the next one on my list as well because we did it uh, every other Friday morning, we'd meet together with a professor who t- deals with Puritans a lot. And I find whenever I read a book in a group setting uh, and then just dis- like a discussion setting, I get like 20% more out of it than I yeah. would have on yeah. my own, especially with this kind of, um, and it's Romans eight twenty eight. 28. Um, but it, I also realized Puritans are hard to read. It's like, I want to, I want to practice that more just as a discipline. <clears throat> Uh, so yeah, that one, then reclaim your marriage and I'll let someone else talk. Otherwise I'm going to run out of books. Okay. The complete book of discipleship by Bill Hull. So have you read this? You just made a face. Okay. Um, so earlier this year I read, uh, like I think I mentioned reading, reading your life story and I was just felt very deeply touched by that book and inspired to learn more about discipleship and mentorship. So but that book was very inspiring, but wasn't necessarily very thorough or insanely organized, which wasn't a huge problem. But I, Chloe has studied this topic a lot more than I have. So she has a lot of books on the shelf about it. And this seemed like a good one to pick up because it's called The Complete Book of Discipleship. It was good, but it was it was kind of like really thorough, but not really inspiring. Like, I think he cares a lot about it, but he just didn't do an amazing job of like communicating that passion. And it's just kind of interesting. It's like, would you rather a book be thorough or inspiring obviously best case scenario it's both but uh like how do you guys feel about that are you are you do you what do you value more in a book like inspiration or or thoroughness that i mean that's maybe that's just kind, maybe that's kind of impossible to answer but that's why like if i would love it if people would read what is a girl worth followed by um on guard Okay. Because then it would be like you would have the inspiration, the deep, deep conviction you need to care. And then you would, because that conviction will allow you to pay attention to the details. True. So, because True. And, I probably never would have made it through that book if I didn't read the other one first. Yeah, honestly. And, and I think, so I've, I've noticed my ability to be radically focused on details is directly proportionate to how stoked I am about the topic in general. So true. Because then I'm flushing out something, flushing out more something I care about. Good answer. All right, uh, my next book is Murder on the Orient Express by Agatha Christie, which is just a very classic murder mystery 
novel. Um, I never actually read this one, although I read a lot of Agatha Christie's uh, when I was in the, I went through a phase of it in my teens. I think a lot of people do that in phases. But yeah, no, first Agatha Christie in a long time and really loved it. Um, really great reader. Uh, what's, what's his name? He does stuff with focus on the family. Um, ah, anyway, I won't, I won't bog us down trying to remember. Here you go. Cool. Um, the Treasure Principle, Randy Alcorn. Finally got around to reading this. Uh, did this you like it piece. as much as the rest of us? Oh, it's great. It's so nice. good. Yeah, it's a it's a great book. Um, I feel like we've extolled its virtues about enough. For the sake of time, we'll keep keep rocking and rolling. But really, it's a it's so short. It's such a good book on on giving and investing in the kingdom and why you should do that. So Michael, do you have something to say about that? Or no, I'll just I'll just keep going then. Um, uh, oh, never mind. On writing, Stephen King. We already talked about that. It was awesome. Lead, Paul David Tripp great book uh it's very new i wonder if a kind soul has been whispering in the ear of the wonderful man telling him to get a good editor it's a tight book it does not go on and rambling really yeah it's like if i remember correctly it's divided into just a bunch of really solid principles and it's it's just really good he has some he's writing from a place and we all kind of know this because like he's been like we've all re- actually read i think most of us have read a lot of his stuff mm-hmm. and like kind of over the years He's writing from a place of, I think, loving weariness a little bit. He's just seen so many problems and seen like so many bad church situations. That, but I also think he's gotten really zoned in on some big problems. And so I just think it's a book on lead, leadership. It's it's kind of church-centric, but I think it will be helpful for anyone in leadership. Mm-hmm. But just, just really clearly nailing down some principles like accountability that you need to have in leadership and i just really i really liked it it was good that's awesome i flipped through that books uh back when i lived at glendoke Dylan was reading it and it was it was quite good yeah i didn't finish it but it was, it was what i read was awesome uh the gospel for disordered lives an introduction to christ-centered biblical counseling by robert jones christine kellen and robert green um i enjoyed this book it's definitely a survey book um while it's a survey it's also still very long like it's over 500 pages um but basically just walks through what is biblical counseling what's the aim of biblical counseling uh counseling in specific situation goes and goes through like just a general introduction into how do you counsel in all these different situations and then how do you counsel different ages so it really just like shotgun hits a lot of that stuff um Right at near the end of the year of, so I feel like a lot of it was review, but kind of just nice to be solidifying things and meditations of Marcus Aurelius, which we already talked about. Okay. Uh, my next book was, uh, dot com secrets by Russell Brunson. What a clickbaity title. Um, this book was just recommended to me by some people who said that it was helpful for learning about, uh, passive income. And really, it's just a marketing book because he, he sort of pitched it as like, I don't want to give you tactics that are going to be outdated in a few weeks. So they're, you know, going to be like kind of evergreen stuff, which really means that it's just sales principles. And it's interesting. It's, it's one of these books where like you really have to kind of grapple with the morals of it the whole time, which is actually a good place to be in. Like it's good to be grappling with the morals. But like a lot of it's like, hmm, this is like borderline unethical, or at least it could be very easily used unethically. So um, it, it was... It was a good read if you want to learn about this specific topic of like click funnels and stuff, but I don't know. It's whatever. 
All right, the next one I'm going to group, let's see, seven together. So, <laughs> okay. Um, it was, it was, this, it, I was reading the Oz books, which I have not read since I was very young. Um, but they were books that I was a massive fan of and they're, they're children's books proper. Uh, like they're all like the same length as like, uh, Narnia books. Mm. So the fact that I read seven Oz books is like the same as reading, I guess the Narnia series. It's not a huge flex, but they are delightful. Mm. Um, most people only know the wizard of Oz, obviously. And I think even of those, I feel like most people have only ever seen the movie. Mm. Um, and I just want to make a pitch for people reading, regardless of your age, clearly. Uh, the Oz books, they're fantastic. The guy wrote like a dozen of them or more. And they're hilarious books. They're the kind of books where, like you guys are talking about Winnie the Pooh or other children's books, they're a little bit more grown up than Winnie the Pooh. In fact, quite a bit more. Um, the author is very, very, very funny and very smart. But the content is still like my children are like my wife is reading through them with my kids right now. And so they're age appropriate for my kids, which, you know, I'm talking about people from like four years old to seven years old kind of people who are listening to them. But also I'm loving reading them as an adult because there's that layering to it. Right. So there's stuff in there that's delightful to me as well. And he has this very he's got a great sense of humor that goes way over the kids heads. But then he's also got this use of irony, Hmm. which is really well developed through the stories there's yeah they're also one of those weird books that again doesn't it doesn't necessarily like talk down to the kid in the audience necessarily i just i love them so much there are some very very funny moments Hmm. some very violent moments too like all the best fairy tales you have crazy crazy violent moments there's there's this one scene where they meet so it's very whimsical which is this is part of we've talked about this before with like lewis carroll where you're like this is weirdly trippy content you know what i mean so there's this moment where they're and they're, almost all the stories are structured around them going on this journey there'll be some mission that they're on and on this in this one they meet this this gigantic insect um named uh the wogglebug and i'm terrified yeah <laughs> the wogglebug he's hm wogglebug uh, Wait, what? HM <laughs> Okay. That's that's his name. And they're like, what does HM stand for? And he's like highly magnified. And, <laughs> and, and HM Wogglebug T E. And they're like, what is T? He's like, Oh, that's the degree of my education. And, and what, what what degree does T E stand for? Thoroughly. I am thoroughly educated. <laughs> and He's, but he's this hilarious, pompous insect. And as they're going on their journey, they're going on their journey with this guy. He keeps making these puns. Now, the author, uh, Frank L. Baum, who wrote these books, he he makes he makes puns from time to time. But with this one character, he decides to really flex that muscle and make a bunch of puns. But he makes awful puns intentionally. And the other characters who are on this journey with the Wogglebug literally turn to him and say, you have got to stop. It is incredibly inappropriate. Like they, they treat it like, they treat it like as shocking that he's making these puns. And they threaten to kill him. <laughs> like the, the, the Tin Woodman is like, I will make you stop as he fondles his axe. And... <laughs> 
<laughs> and, and then later on, the Wagga Bug drops another pun. And, (laughs) and they just, they're literally marching along on their merry way. He makes another pun and they stop and they're like, excuse me, what did you just say? And he's like, he explains the pun to them. And they're like, did we not ask you? To stop addressing us in this indecorous manner. And, like, <laughs> and he's just like, I cannot help it when such availability is right there. Like, <laughs> it is. Did they ki- They did not kill okay, him. Okay. They did not. I thought that's where it was going. It's like, no, like and they, then they killed him. They actually didn't. They, the woodsman on sheets did his axe. <laughs> he killed a lot of people with his axe. Anyway. <laughs> But not the one person. But he's who deserved also it. weirdly like H-M obsessed Wogglebug. with like compassion. It's just so T E. And they but they like have these weird ideas that they'll like he he'll actually like play out. Like what 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 does courage mean? Or what does what what is compassion and how does it manifest in difficult situations? And like so like they're amazing, amazing books. Wow. Oh man. Are audiobooks? Did you or did you paper copy them? I have both. Okay. I was doing audiobooks. Oh yeah, okay. Did you uh Audible? Okay, cool. I, I might, I might you actually. You get like the whole collection for one credit. Okay, that's really funny. I, I'm definitely gonna read some of these. That sounds amazing. Um, genius, a very short introduction. Andrew Robinson. There, the, I think it's Oxford. Might be Cambridge. I think it's Oxford that does their very short introduction series. I've read a few of their books. They're awesome, like 100 pages. And I was looking on a book for a book on beauty uh, that someone recommended. And I couldn't find it. And I just saw a book on genius. And I was like, actually, that's cool. And it's just a book on genius. How we consider genius, various geniuses, what makes a genius, how do we tell what a genius is. Um, it's just It was just a good little foray into the topic. So, I don't know. I kind of, I thought that was really interesting. I was chilling and John came up and he's like, bro, what are you reading? And I turned to him and I said, your biography. And he was like, that was really smooth. <laughs> And I feel like there's opportunities with the beauty book to do similar things. So I mm. might, uh, might give that a shot at Southern. You just gave away. <laughs> <laughs> no one's going to listen to this. Trust me. I mean, you if, if you get tired of reading that book over and over, you could also just like take the dust cover off and put it on other books. So true. Mm. That's a great, that's a good idea. Anyways, but people um, will think you're kind of dumb and like have been taking two years to read one book. True. Anyway, sorry. Carry on. That's a good point. Um, I'm getting close to my... 10 books left where are you guys at about three i have five left okay so i'll i'll just do two here um an anthropologist on mars by oliver sacks very very good he does a similar thing that he does with the man who mistook his wife for a hat um which i love which is a great i know right so good uh but this time he he basically does less stories and uses each of them to pull out a specific theme. And his his basic point was, he's like, Jake, sorry, I just want to stop you. I realized people might not know what it is, just because I know. Oh, um, right, right, right. Sorry. In in a man who mistook his wife for a hat, he's a, a neuroscientist. Yeah, Neuro- yeah. Neuro- Oliver Sacks was one of the most prolific neuroscientists, and he just tells some of the weirdest, st- most interesting stories from his practice and different times doing therapy, like just stories of these very very specific cases of autism or Tourette's or just any various disorder where it sometimes yeah. had a really detrimental even some ones where it was like a almost a superpower I don't know they're just they're fascinating he tells them in a very like poetic and kind of charming I, I'm trying, that's yeah, not the yeah, right yeah. word I don't no, know no. he's just a very good writer 
so that's so the the second one that you said was that's kind of the thrust of an anthropologist on Mars. He basically looks at people who have have severe dysfunction, but have used that in a way to or either coped or used that as a way to like excel at life. So he interviewed a guy who this is so crazy. He had a seizure. They think he had a seizure and he lost the ability to see color. He lost the ability to remember or experience color. All his memories became black and white, but like a hyper gradiented out like spectrum of black and white. It was so, so this guy, but the, sorry, I, I, screw it, I missed the most important part of that story. This guy was a wildly prolific artist. So he was a painter, like to the point where he knew like the, like, I forget, it's not Pantone, but whatever the actual painter's equivalent of Pantone is, like the colors for like um, various famous paintings. Like he could look at colors and do like the numbers. Um, and he lost his complete ability to paint because he like saw, because he saw the world only in black and white and remembered the world only in black and white, which is wild if you think about it. And so, but it talked about how this guy eventually kind of began to cope with that and then became a really prolific black and white artist. He talked about another story. It's seven, seven stories. Another guy is a guy with horrible Tourette's who was a surgeon and managed to, sorry, what? He, he was a, he was a surgeon and he managed to build rhythms in his life to be able to like do operations like flawlessly and his Tourette's didn't bother him once. And it, it's, but it's a study in how Tourette's works, which is so, no, it's so cool. And then the final one is, um, some of you guys might've heard of Temple, uh, Grandin, yeah. Grandinton. Such a dope story. Temple Grandin. Yeah. Temple Grandin. Her he, story's so. sick. Did he work with her or is he, he just, no, he, he spent, story. he spent a few days with her. Um, yeah. Cause like, she's still alive right now. Yeah. Yeah. And she is someone, she has autism, but she has worked, oh, I, I, man, it's, her story is so interesting. She has autism, but she works with slaughterhouses to make them more humane. Because basically in her words, in a much more technical sense, because she's a brilliant researcher, she says she sees the world closer to the way animals do than the way people do. And so she says she has this brilliant, this innate ability to understand and experience the world in that way. And then she designs um, like a lot of animal uh, farming products and stuff in a way that makes it a humane system of like killing animals. It's yeah, so I don't, I don't know how accurate this film was, but she was like a producer on it or something. So like must be occasionally accurate, but the way they portrayed it was like, you know, it was a movie biopic, but they would, there would be animations of shapes she was seeing. It seems like she really sees things in geometric shapes as well, okay. at least based on the movie. I don't want to say that's how it was, but so she would see also these like shapes of the way the animals would run and the way that the cow herder was like chasing the opposite way of the way they would want to. And she would see the like actual like, I don't know. It was really cool. Yeah. Really dope. It was actually one of the coolest films I think I've ever watched. Oh, wow. So interesting. Huh. You guys both watched it at the same time or different times? Or? It's years ago now. I don't, so I don't know when. Okay. But cool. Anyway, so that's a couple of books for me. Really, if, you, if you're interested in this kind of thing, Oliver Sacks, almost anything that guy's written is really, really fascinating. He's, he's wonderful. Uh, for me, The God Ask, A Fresh Biblical Approach to hey, Personal Support Raising by Steve Shadrach. This is a really good book. I really enjoyed it. It's basically in... The Dutch Reformed churches, uh, like if a mission, like if a missionary goes out, the sending church usually or a group of sending churches will pay for their entire, uh, all their financial needs. Um, outside of this community, most people actually 
like as individuals have to raise their own support um, and usually do that through like just going to people, having events, however they choose to do it, but like raising monthly support. And Steve Shadrach is the trainer for like the navigators um, and a lot of other like really big sending agencies. Um, it's not like this book was revolutionary to me, but it just really nailed down some like how to's on personal support raising as well as the biblical foundation for the idea of a worker being worthy of pay and also how when a laborer is sent and and financially supported the people who help support them are like truly partnering in in the work that they're doing um and he points out i think it's um oh that's no it's sorry philippians 4 uh that's where paul talks about personal support raising and how the philippian church like partnered with him in like uh paying for his needs along the way and he like describes it's not that i seek the um the, the, the rewards, but I seek the goal on your account. Like, so it's just really interesting ways of talking about it. And then he just goes through like practically what are good things to do when you go into a personal support meeting, what are dumb things to do. And his main thing is just sit down across from a person, explain your vision and then ask them. And don't try to use all sorts of other fancy mediums to do the asking for you. Ask them, like, man to man, would you consider supporting me monthly for this vision? And just see what God does with it. So it's really good. I would highly recommend it if you're doing support raising. Cool. Cool. My next book was Get in the Van by Henry Rollins. So, what? On how to kidnap. No, 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 no. no. So, that's funny. That, that is funny. No, it's... White vans and other social problems. No, <laughs> so it's actually about... Uh, Henry Rollins was the lead singer slash yeller, whatever you want to call it, of Black Flag in the early late 70s, early 80s. Um, it's interesting. We kind of have this weird, like, distorted, sort of glorified view of punk now, and it's kind of like a cool thing to do. 80s counterculture was gnarly. Um, just so weird like so first off i understand why people hated cops so much because they man it was just brutal like um they would just show up to these shows basically to fight and to like fight these people but then meanwhile there was also like punk was mostly radical leftists and uh that kind of punk but then there was also punk the other type of punk bands were skinheads which is radical far right nazis so the shows would basically be like these skinheads would show up just to fight. Then cops would go there to quote unquote break up the fights, but they would usually start them. And so it was just like the shows were basically just brawls between skinheads, punks and cops. And, um, and, and like, it was so weird because they kind of seemed to hate their fans. Like it was like, they sort of had this disdain for the fans in the whole book, but the fans would also show up to throw stuff at them. And it was just this very like weird, I don't know. This book just sounds really depressing. And honestly it kind of was, but it, I mean, the, it sounds like, was it compelling? It sounds wildly interesting to me. It was. It, it here's the only thing. It's wildly raw. When I say it's a a, a memoir of it, I, sh I that's actually not accurate. It's his unedited journal entries for two years, um, of of the tour. So, or, 
I think he journaled mo- after most shows and then would do sort of like a summary of certain periods of time. And uh, it's just like raw is the only word I can describe. Not only the lifestyle they were living of like literally going days without food in order to make sure they could get because they were where they weren't getting paid enough. These bands are it's the crazy thing is these bands blew ups in success later like their music did. And now bands like Black Flags or the Ramones are like, you probably know them from their logo on t-shirts. But at the time, like, yes, they had a pretty big following. They could actually tour around and even tour to Europe, but they were like on the edge of starvation at all times. Like just barely had enough money from the next show show to purchase the gas and like a meal to move to the next place. It was just a crazy lifestyle of like, so there is something sort of glorious about that, about just how like, like raw youth anger energy but it's also like very depressing i feel like that was what was kind of beautiful about it is there wasn't really any moral it was just like here it is do what you will with this story he he didn't give any kind of forward or henry rollins is very active now he's like a spoken word poet and stuff but he he didn't give any kind of like forward or afterward it was just like here you go you can read this and find out what it's like to be a very angry and um uh, what's, the, what's the word I'm looking for? Angsty? I don't know. But like kid who who needed the catharsis of punk music and a bunch of other kids who also needed the catharsis, even though it mostly meant throwing bottles at the band that you sh- paid money to see. What? Uh, what? What? Lee? Why'd you read this? Like what? I read it because I like Henry Rollins. He does stand up comedy occasionally as well. And his stories are pretty hilarious. Like in the book, they're not funny at all. It's like, he's telling them as like a a clearly very depressed and lonely young man who all he knows is how to scream into a mic and like, just get raw catharsis. Mm -hmm. And, and other than that, it's just like, that's his life is just so depressing. Um, but uh, now he seems in a much healthier place, but I liked him as a person. So when I heard that he had written and I have a certain, again, we all do a a certain fascination with punk. It's this music is like, you don't even understand how raw it is because of like how processed quote unquote punk is now. And I I prefer to listen to more modern punk, but it's like, now it's like a production of like properly produced music. This stuff was like just three chords and like the worst guitar and drums mix you've ever heard. It's just like, it feels borderline unlistenable. It's uh, and but I have a weird fascination with it. Like I actually do listen to Black Flag a fair bit. Mm. Um, so raw, so DIY. The book was so raw. It's only about two hours. So if you're interested, read it. But like right. it's it's again, there's no moral. It's just like here are the journal entries of a person who lived a, a strange life for five for six years or something. Yeah. All right, uh, I'm going to group a couple. These are a couple more books that I had to read for school. Um, the first is The Prince by Niccolo Machiavelli. Uh, not my first time reading it. Um, I'd read this previously. I always struggle not to find this book boring. Uh, who, who, you guys read this? Yeah, I've read it. No. Oh, okay. What did, what did you think, Jacob? I just, I knocked it out too fast. Um, I didn't really know what I was getting into. I wish I understood the history a bit better. But is it, are we like going to say that it's satirical? Like he, like the whole point if he wrote it was to kind of show how you should, how like terrible it is to run it like that or not, you know? So that's, that's obviously the big debate. Was he sincere? Was he satirical? Um, and the the thing is, even if there's that satirical element, I don't think that at any point is it entirely satirical. So yeah, I think that 
the stuff that makes us uncomfortable with it, at least some of that he would own. Hmm. That that's that's my take. Um, it's a book about. Yeah, well, it's a book. It's a book written by this um, like late medieval, early Renaissance um, statesman named Niccolo Machiavelli, um, all about how a a prince or a, a, a statesman, a leader of men, should conduct himself before his people and before other statesmen. And it is infamous. A lot of people, will, of course, be familiar with Machiavelli as like an adjective, like Machiavellian, referring to. Uh, brutally pragmatic uh, ways of handling things where it's like the end justifies the means that's Machiavellian um, and it's it's in the book like lie if you need to it's good that people see you as being good but you need to get good at being bad that kind of stuff so it, he he at this point seems to be like explicitly promoting evil which is why a lot of people think huh he also wrote it for the benefit of a guy who was somewhat infamous um, that one of the Medici family so they were kind of like, ah, you know what? He was probably like, this was probably a little bit of a snarky, snarky sort of blow at the Medici's. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I also find like a lot of his referencing and stuff I find boring. He's talking about like, oh yes, now this, this, this prince over here in Spain and he did this thing on this campaign. And I just get immediately bored. Um, there is, however, I saw that there's a, uh, like a great corset plus thing, I think, that's huh. all about understanding the prince. Uh, and I, I would be down. I'd be like, okay, it's like it's like twelve hours. I'd be like, wow, I feel like I'd come out of that understanding this. Um, the other one that I had to do for school, that I got here, not wanted on the voyage by Timothy Findlay. Um, this is a a sort of postmodern retelling of the Noah's Ark account, um, and I did not like it at all. It's very intentionally blasphemous. Uh, very intentionally, like like God and Noah are like the demons of the peace, and Satan is this weird. Uh, trans angel hero character anyway so it is it was written in 1984 i believe but anyway <laughs> it is of course it was. sounds like a trip yeah it's honestly garbage but but it's okay but it's it also has like like a scene of like pretty graphic sexual abuse of a, of a minor and stuff like that and it's just like oh yeah it seems completely unnecessary and yeah, it, it's quite well written. Like the author is clearly talented from like a, a raw skill level. Um, but I just, quite honestly, I was like, there's no, there. this book does not justify itself, especially in the context in which I was reading it. Um, and honestly, if you wanted a book that kind of like makes you, has like a another perspective that makes you rethink a biblical story that's really thoughtful, um, like, I don't know, maybe East of Eden, but <laughs> yeah. uh, obviously not a postmodern story, but uh, there, there's just better books that also are challenging and thoughtful. And also I would just posit that there's a big difference between being broadly provocative and being genuinely thoughtful. Yeah. And the two can get confused for each other because provocative does make you think sometimes and it, make, it kind of gets you to sit up straight, right? But it's not necessarily because it was actually carefully thoughtful. Uh, and then I also read Something's Not Right, but we already covered that. So moving on yeah. to you, Jake. Cool. Uh, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And um, yeah, this is basically, yeah, it's a day in the life of a guy who was um, a prisoner in the gulags. It's a, it's a fiction account. Um, but it's by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who spent 
a lot of time in the gulags and so it's a pretty uh it's pretty real it's gripping it's dark it's pretty good uh there i think there are better books if you want to know russian russian history and there are better books if you want to know the depravity of people but it's a short book um it's good i i'm or it's it's not good it's hard it's dark but it's always healthy i just like every once in a while i just want to read a little bit of every once in a while i just want to read some hard history stuff just to remind myself of how grateful i should be which is right i also reread the rape of nanking by iris chang did i did you read it this year no I still haven't been able to make myself read that. Dude, it is. So The Rape of Nanking is on my top 10 recommended Nanking of all time. Sorry, sorry. I should say that. Nanking is a city in Japan. Oh, sorry, China. It is. It was the capital of China. And it's the, it's the story of the Japanese forces in World War II coming in and absolutely obliterating the city over the course of six weeks. I've been saying that over 200,000 people died. Uh, I was wrong. I forgot. It was close to 400,000 people were killed over the course of six weeks. It's insane. And the book, again, the, the, the mark of a good book for me is a book that does a lot of things at once. Mm. And for this book, the fact that like it's, it's this gripping account of a tragedy we all largely forgot mm. which is so incredible to me that we don't hear about the rape of nanking we don't hear about about really much about the japanese invasion into china in world war ii if you're like well the holocaust we all know about that and it's good but it but i, I don't know i don't we don't i don't i don't hear talked or bandied around much like that side of uh, like the pacific front unless you're into that subject i suppose i feel right? like a lot of stuff in asia is just kind of yeah let's go ahead and I think a, a part of the reason for that is that this actually happened, like, before World War II. So Rape of Nanking wasn't part of World War II. It happened, actually, uh, like, a good two years before uh, World War II, as we understand it from the Western perspective, ever right. broke out. So 1937, right? Uh, and it was the second Sino-Japanese War, so it was part of an ongoing bad relationship yeah. that had started in, like, the 1890s. So it somewhat legitimately was part of a, a context that doesn't cross wires with the Western experience, which is why we know more about Japanese involvement in World War Two, what we would say World War Two proper, right? Like as of Pearl Harbor onward, basically. Yeah. Um, fair. Uh, it's again, and the craziness. What I read didn't really. Um, th there is a a Nazi, a National Socialist, who is the hero of Nanking, which again is just a wild thing to read about how incredible this guy was, and like writing constantly to Hitler about um the the like what was going down in nanking um i also didn't remember how many christians like the iris chang does a pretty decent job of um of highlighting some of the christians and what they did to help and they were really the only people that stayed and some of the missionaries and stuff there and goes through their stories as well so it's a really it's actually just i think she's just honest about how the christians there and, and what they did it's a it's a good if if, there, if you only ever read one dark book in order to convince yourself about how horrible human beings can be, give that book a read. It's so hard, but it's I think it's just important if you're in the business of trying to get a well-rounded view of the world. At some point, you got to do a dive and read a couple books about how bad human beings can be. You have to, as far as I'm concerned, because just oh, human beings are very sinful, and yeah, we do wars doesn't quite cut how absolutely intentionally horrifying the human being can be, and I think there's some theological conclusions you can draw from that 
that left to our own devices, like there's there's just hell. And that and Nanking was hell. Yeah. Um, happier book, um, Pure in Heart by Garrett Kell. Second time around for me, and significant. I liked it the first time a lot. Yeah, Garrett Kell's in the documentary that we're producing. I enjoyed this a lot more even a second time. Um, he does a very compelling. He's an amazing writer for one, and he does a very compelling job of showing how fighting against pornography, fighting for purity, is not an end. It's a means to an end, which is seeing Christ more clearly and just kind of making sure that is always at the center of the strategies that we are like employing to kill pornography and and sexual sin. And I also just appreciate he like, I think he has a focus of pornography, but he keeps referencing other different areas of sexual integrity as well that um, maybe aren't quite as cut and dry as pornography. So it's an amazing book, big recommend. And I'm doing it right now with like a group of guys in like a book study. And this is a really good book study one as well, because it has questions in the back. It's just very easy to read. How many book studies are you in this year? I feel like I've heard like six things. Or are you guys just moving through? Is it one book group that's moving through it really quickly? I, I've been in a lot of different book studies, either through like church or starting myself. Or I love book studies. Like I will sign up for one of those like anytime I have, I can give the time because I just get so much more out of it. And it's almost like, yeah, there's a really cool thing that happens I find when you read a book with other people. Yeah. Okay, we're back to humanity's depravity. Not actually. Um, I want to talk about humans by Brandon Stanton. It's not really by him because it's just a collection of his travels and the stories he's gathered. So for anyone who knows Humans of New York, this is the guy. He has made a Humans of New York book, which is wonderful. But he, right before the pandemic, he traveled to like... 30 countries, I don't know how many exactly, all over the world, all the continents, and would find translators there and work with them and do what he does of taking beautiful photographs and getting people's stories. And it is a astounding book. I hope you guys don't mind. I know we're way over time, but I wanted to spend a little bit of time on this one because it's my last book of the year anyway. Um, It was actually interesting reading this one right after World War Z. Those are my last two books of the year because, um, yeah, just like they're both sort of these collections of stories from people all over the world and getting sort of contrasting their perspective. Something he'll do sometimes is like if he's doing one about infidelity or unhappiness with um, not having enough in life, he'll put like three or four stories back to back that have a similar theme, but maybe very different outcomes. Like one person, uh, you know, like had a absent father and one wants to kill them and one totally forgave them or, you know, one arranged marriage that went really well, one arranged marriage that went really bad. And then a story of someone meeting their spouse at McDonald's, you know? Um, wow. I just, I just want to read a couple of these really quickly. Cause so like a really good example, like a really beautiful one is like, there's this man here who's just smiling. This is in, um, Pakistan. And he says, when I'm bored, I call up radio Pakistan and request a song. Then I'll start dancing. I'll even dance on a rainy day. It's my way of expressing how grateful I am. I think I'm the happiest man in Pakistan. It's just like, that's so cute. I love that. Like just stuff like that. And then there's ones like this one where it's like 
a very in detail story, which I should say some of these stories are very in detail. He does not uh, censor them uh, of just her mother's abuse and how much cruelty her mother. And then she says, um, I was terrified of dinner because that's when I had to face my mother. So I spent my entire childhood alone. I just played with my cats in the garden or sat in the floor of my bedroom. I would try so hard to leave my body because I didn't want to be on earth. And that's when the spirits and fairies would come to me. Even mother Mary would come to me. I was never afraid of them. They'd comfort me. I remember being seven years old, sitting alone beneath a tree, talking to the fairies. And then another little girl walked up and asked what game I was playing. That's when I realized that no one else could see what I was seeing. And it's been a very lonely existence ever since then. It's just like, ah, like, oh man. And then some of them are, so some of them are like long form, like will be like multiple pages of like a a long form story. And then some of it will just be like this little girl who's like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to swing on an adult swing. Like that's her only goal. And it's, it's great. So the book's just like <laughs> an absolute emotional roller coaster from start to finish. Cause it's oh. like, goes from very wholesome to sometimes just interesting to, to like, i obviously you'll cry many times during it. Um, so yeah, this was, uh, maybe my favorite book of the year and just, wow. yeah. Wow. Can't recommend it enough. I've always loved the humans of New York. Um, whenever I whenever it comes across my screen and that sounds like a book I will probably buy I love that absolutely um, do yeah so I guess I'm gonna group a couple yeah. we're, we're starting right now uh, get three okay actually then I'm gonna just leave it uh, first and second Peter John MacArthur eyes uh, of just one of John MacArthur's uh, books of the Bible studies um, we've talked about these studies in the past they're never super super deep um, but the group of guys who I have the privilege of doing Bible studies with always managed to make it uh, a fantastic exercise. The conversation stays uh, very, very edifying. Jacob, on to you. Here's our host, Jacob Valk. I've been, uh, I've been able to go to the last two. Illustrious host, Jacob Valk. I was able to go to the last two of those Bible studies, and I loved working through the last chapter of Peter, of Second Peter. Just, um, there's a lot of just heaven in there, and we talked a lot about that. It was great. Um, The Martian, Andy Weir. Such a good book. I enjoy that book. I enjoyed that book so much. There's a really good audiobook of it. Um, somewhere I've I found I had a file of it, and it's just an adventure story. Dude gets left on Mars, survives. It's awesome. It's just so. It's written in a lot of its first person as first person narration in the form of logs like uh like command logs or sorry mission logs that he just records um and he's just really snarky like there's a fair language warning there's a there's an okay amount of language but it's funny because it's in the context of nasa always being super not impressed that he's being unprofessional and he's just like i'm on mars and alone screw off you can't do anything about it and then nasa's like be advised all uh, communications are being monitored he's like i don't care and so it's it's just it got it goes it'll go in nasa as they try and work out a solution to save him then it'll be with him a little bit as he's surviving and it's a great survival story i just it's the second time i've read it and i just enjoyed it so much um and then i read uh the god ask by steve shadrach we already talked about that or michael did and it's great uh the dispatcher john scalzi it's a story about um oh, i love that story <clears throat> pardon I love that story. The Dispatcher? Yeah. Really? Have you? Did you read the whole series? Yeah. Uh, no. Yeah, there's a bunch of them. Okay. Uh, 
Are we talking about the same thing? We are definitely talking about the same thing. I love John Scalzi. So it's very conceptual. It's the idea that people don't die. Yeah. 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 So so um, they, they randomly discover somehow the world that when people are murdered, they don't die. They appear back at their home just vibing. And if, however, you can die by other means. So what this means is there's a new career called dispatchers who basically right when someone is like terminally like right about to die, like a, a surgery goes wrong, something goes wrong, and they're like just about to die, they come in and kill them so that if they're killed, they'll be fine. And it's this weird industry. And then so they, then, then the author, um, John, just walks through the like ramifications of that. And then also just really interesting, like mob bosses and like it's a, it becomes a form of teleportation and it's just such a weird, never explained why, but it's just, it's interesting, short, it's a short story, it's not very long, but it's a, it was really good. So, But it's a short story that's part of a trilogy of short stories on the that. dispatching. Oh. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, oh. I recommend you pick up the other two. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I have a short story here. James Moriarty, Consulting Criminal by Andy Weir. This is a recommendation from Jake. Also read so it. good. Um, <clears throat> just hilarious. It's basically the Sherlock Holmes <laughs> style, like to a T of the writing. Um, anywhere, just kind of like ripping off that in a good way. And But from the perspective of Moriarty. And more, sorry, Moriarty's sidekick. So it's just really good. It, it's, it's a perfect inversion of Sherlock Holmes. And yeah. it's so dark. In a, in a funny, like, it's a kid's book in, in so many ways, except for, like, the slitting of throats and the murdering of people. <laughs> so, it, it was really funny. I enjoyed it. It's, it's almost it's almost comical, though, because you're expecting, it's written so much like 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 Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Yeah. That you're, like, not prepared for the sudden violent turn, because that's just never what Sherlock Holmes would do. <laughs> but then Moriarty's like, well... I suppose you should kill him. And he goes, I suppose I shall. And then just like kills Slits the his throat. And then you just like, and then you just keep nice. it on with the story. And it's Ooh. funny because that's, that's like mob character. Right? He's, he's a mob criminal. And so it's just, this, it's exact. He's such a great, he replicates his style of writing so well. Yeah. And just adds the necessary violence that would come from James Moriarty being a criminal. Yep. All right. Uh, my next, I'm doing two here. Uh, Divergent and Insurgent uh, by Veronica Roth. They're the first two books in a four-part series, I believe. Um, these are uh, books that I read at the recommendation of my two wonderful uh, sisters. Shout out. Shout out to, to my wonderful teenage sisters. And these books are like young adult, um, post-apocalyptic world some pretty cool world building. Um, the world is all broken into the factions based upon, you know, different characteristics and stuff like that. People who are um, super smart versus people who are super compassionate versus people who are like violence capable. Um, so it's kind of cool because then she explores the sort of dynamics that exist between factions that were established around those value sets. Um, it is a young adults uh, series which for me means that the writing style differs from the writing style I generally pursue in my reading. Um, it's just a little bit more um, sarcastic and angsty than I'm accustomed to. It is, <laughs> it is um, really good world building. Okay, is, is what I is what I really love about that. 
Sometimes a good, a good, a well-built world can you can forgive a lot. Hey. Yeah. Um. Uh. Sorry, Jake. And likewise, a well-written book can forgive a lot of bad world building. You are, yeah. Mm, I wonder what we're talking about. Um, Christian Ethics, Five Views, uh, Spectrum Multi View Series by IVP. Um, I found out a cool thing from Micah the other day is that apparently some of the IVP books actually have the original author writes a even shorter reply to each of the replies. Some of their books are set up that way, which is really cool. So it's like sandwiched. Um, which I really like. I would love to read one because I often find out when, when someone writes a reply, I often wish what the original author would have said in reply to that. Mm. So this is Christian Ethics. Um, we're doing an ethics course, Jamichael and I, uh, at seminary in a few weeks. And I maybe, who knows, might do my PhD in ethics. So I'm really just trying to dive into that world as deeply as possible. I'm finding it a little frustrating. I wish... In the at least so far, I'm dipping my toes. There's a lot I don't understand. I wish in the Christian ethics space there was more disagreement, so that you could actually fence off, like you could fence off positions a little bit tighter, and then see how they interact with each other. But as it stands, like like Aristotelian virtue ethics and um, natural law, and they seem to all kind of flow together and have. It's just like seems like you're emphasizing different elements with each. But then even in the replies for each of them. They were like, oh, wow, I love this essay. There's so much good here. In fact, I think it's a great subset, subset to my theory. And you're like, okay. So, and then I would just highlight this and this as two different things. And it's like almost all of them ended up agreeing with each other, mm. mostly, as opposed to like four views on hell, which is like, no, I definitely don't think hell is forever. Or I definitely do. And I'm going to mm. tell you why. And maybe that's just the nature of ethics, but I wish there was more clarity, at least in this thing and then there was one that was just the final one was prophetic ethics which is was trash it was just nonsense um i won't go into that for time but dang because that's one i really want to hear about we can do it off air if you want i mean all all takes is so i guess prophetic ethics is a christianized version i'm doing a very oversimplification but it's a christianized version of like social justice stuff so it's christian it's oh it's not ethics in regards to prophecy no no prophetic ethics is like speaking truth to power kind of okay never mind. in, in the way okay. the prophets yeah. would have done which has a point right and yeah but the, the author just has the wildest offhand statements like jesus marched the road to, like to confront the roman authorities it's like that's not what jesus uh, was it was he was speaking truth to power to the road it's like no not really no, in fact not, he not really he, in fact he tactfully avoided rome almost at every turn yeah like he didn't that's not the point and and rome and just, wasn't even really they didn't even really want to crucify him but <laughs> I mean, well that's the irony too right yeah but okay. the, the point is like and it's like okay yeah he points out a couple of really helpful things like sometimes christian religious ethics have been like primarily concerned with is this a moral choice for you or not and not concerned with broader social justice questions in a lack of concern might so but the whole conversation was his whole chapter this guy which whose name i'm not even gonna bring up was so wrapped up in 20th century north american concerns it was almost hilarious everyone else was trying to build like kind of coherent ethical systems and he was just like but racism though and talked about it the whole time one of the fire things he did say was, he's like, he one of the his critiques to one of the other guys' chapters, he's like, you mentioned Aristotle like 40 times and Jesus once. He's like, 
your ethics are building way more off Aristotle than anything Jesus said in the Gospels. And I was like, that's savage. And I am a little bit nervous sometimes when I'm trying to read ethical stuff about how much we hang on Aquinas and Aristotle. And But you know what? I'm, I'm going to shut up there because there's a lot I don't understand about this. So I'm just going to read a whole bunch more books and see see what I can do. I mean, it's not maybe not right, but it's somewhat understandable just in the sense of the fact that the Bible isn't really concerned with turning morality into a science. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah maybe. I'm not sure. I don't sure. think that justifies it, but anyway. Yeah. I, I don't know. There's ethical theories are interesting. I'll just, I'll leave it at there. Cause oh, I also read James Moriarty consulting criminal. It was great. Um, and then just kind of throwing it in there. Great classic science fiction. It was an assorted of a whole bunch of classic science fiction stuff. It was free and audible and applied it. It was good. Uh, second to last for me, the Cambridge seven by John Pollock. Hmm. Uh, this was interesting. It was a very short book. Uh, just about seven Cambridge students who, um, kind of were all like either not Christians or very nominal Christians and how kind of based on some revival things that were going on, uh, uh, forgetting the guy's name who, who was doing that, but he was preaching at Cambridge a whole bunch and one guy got really convicted and he started talking about it with his fellow students and they teamed up and they just prayed together a lot, read the Bible together, talked to their fellow students. They got convicted and, uh, eventually, they connected with Hudson Taylor, and uh, they felt really convicted about missions to China. And this is kind of like very early on in the, obviously because of Hudson Taylor, it was like an early missionary. And all seven of them went to different parts of China as missionaries. Wow. Um, and a lot of them leaving, like the one guy was like the son of an earl. The other guy was like a famous cricket player. Uh, like it's just really cool is very short book and in some ways i actually didn't like the format because they kind of follow seven guys lives over 100 pages so you don't really get enough on any of them but either way it was still just inspirational like the power of how god can use one or two people to inspire more people and be used in powerful ways because they all spent their entire careers in china so it's just it was really cool and it made me like want to look into more like group stuff too. Yeah. That's kind of been interesting to me, like friendship, group, mm. sets, as we've talked about a bit before. I'd like to read more books on that. Hmm. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, Why We Sleep by Dr. Matthew Walker. Hmm. Uh, Matthew Walker's the goat. He is the goat, isn't he? Um, he's the goat of sleep. Yes, he's the sleep goat, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> Do you do you listen to his podcast? Goat. Now get no, but I listened to his his Joe Rogan episode. Like I, I'm ashamed to say anything from Joe Rogan changed my life. No, I'm just kidding. But but his Joe Rogan episode like changed my life. Um, I I did not care at all about sleep until I heard that, and it totally like I shifted all of my habits overnight. So interesting. The, the people who since. end up on Joe Rogan, man, I I do not follow or watch or listen to Joe Rogan whatsoever. And yet the number of people will be like, oh, this is a really cool authority in this field. Oh, yeah, he's on Joe Rogan. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. The well, diversity of people like, who end up just, on that. There's not a lot of other people other than his own audiobook where you would get to hear him talk for more than three hours. Yeah. So I could, if I knew who well, he, he was. he has a podcast, right? Sure. But yeah. I just mean, like, it makes sense that that would be the first place where people would have a really, like, good encounter with him. I, I would be interested to hear more of his stuff, but I feel like it's kind of done its work. And I, like, get eight hours 
probably six nights a week now. That's amazing. No, a great book. He goes into all of the reasons you should get sleep, all the ways you should get sleep, the science of what sleep is and how it functions um, insofar as we understand that space. Uh, actually, one of those books where you read it and you're like, hmm, everyone should probably read this just for their well-being. Um, the only a couple, a couple things, when you're reading someone who's a specialist in their field, it can sometimes seem, based on the way they're presenting information, that the entire world revolves around their specialty. Um, and you know what, like fair, like sleep is incredibly central to our existence. And I can see why you would have that idea that we can explain all the world's problems with sleep, right? <laughs> um, which he almost, he almost goes there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you also understand like mad focused specialists such as himself, like he's a crazy cool researcher in his field. Um, it's understandable that you would get that kind of like hyper-focus. Um, another thing that's kind of funny that I've observed with a couple books that I sought out for their, for their specialties is you'll have these guys who are researchers. Um, so Matthew Walker's one, the other guy, I read a book about like the placebo effect in research mm. that was really interesting to me just cause I love that, um, by this other researcher. And one, something that you run into with guys who work in there is both these authors either explicitly or sort of like just sort of like in passing take shots at pharmaceutical companies broadly and you can just see that for them and like, like the, these are not these are far from like hippy dippy authors right like these are not like yeah you should be using essential oils instead like they're so far not there right these guys both would promote the use of pharmaceuticals but you can see the frustration from a researcher's perspective mm. trying to like work out you know do studies and figure out what works best and what is effective and why it's effective. And then to have like your work cannibalized in a marketing campaign where it's like, do you want to feel happy? You know what I mean? And, <laughs> and, and to like have to like, and, and to see Ew. pharmaceutical companies like <laughs> rushing the gun on research and, yeah. and oversimplifying yeah. research into like marketable little se selling points and then turning something that's potentially extremely dangerous. So like Matthew Walker's big thing is how uh, dangerous a lot of sleeping medication is. Um, if turning it into like a multi-billion dollar gimmick that is potentially killing people. Hmm. And so you, you do run into this with these guys where they're like, yeah, I'm all about pharmaceuticals and I'm all about medical research and you should definitely be listening to your doctor and also far big pharma sucks. Like, <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, great book. Hmm. Cool. Uh, next book. I discovered this super cool thing that I can listen to audiobooks from my library. And I'm stoked about that fact. So I've just been, too. yeah, I've just been like scrolling through library and looking for interesting audiobooks to listen to. Uh, Permanent Record by Edward Snowden. It's essentially his uh, biography. So I just also realized we read a lot of biographies and autobiographies yeah. this year. Sorry, you guys did. That's true. I read uh, hardly any. Uh, permanent record is his autobiography so autobiography edward snowden uh, most people should know that he like right now it's kind of we all take it for granted the government's spying on us or like this like that's just sort of not an odd thing he broke that snowden is the goat of traitors who aren't traitors yeah he's the whistle he is not one of the first whistleblowers but certainly the biggest all right uh, real talk um so it's it was fascinating him walking through his life like how he got to the because it's actually a series of very interesting flukes that like it like he worked here which randomly granted him this access 
this level of security access, then here, this level of security access, which, oh, interestingly, allowed him to get this level of security access, which put him in a weird place where he was doing like a not super high level job that had wild access to everything the CIA basically ever made. And that allowed him to slowly start following this breadcrumb trail of like unraveling what the CIA was doing in, in illegal wiretapping of of the American population. But he walks you through how the CIA redefined terms. So for example, that you know, there's because there's stuff there's stuff in the constitution that very clearly prohibits the government spying on on the on civilians. Like explicitly. Which is, I don't I didn't know that actually. But what the CIA would redefine it as is they would consider like it's, it says, you will, you shall not bulk data collect. Basically, uh, it's, the phrasing is a bit different, but you, you like you shall not obtain the information from a large uh, portion of citizens indiscriminately. They would say it's only when you retrieve that information that it counts as collecting. So they would collect it and store it, and then get the surveil uh, get the warrants for what they wanted post the fact, and then retrieve it. Oh man! So things of that level was the justification for massive illegal, like, like what other world... people are t terming illegal. Yeah, no, like it is. Well, yeah, unless if if you unless you buy that, clearly <laughs> illegal things that the CIA did, right. and to levels that, like when these are actually going into detail at the amount of stuff the CIA could take from you and the philosophical like reasons why we should care Edward's a brilliant writer um Snowden and it was crazy and just told the story of why he eventually and the sacrifice that that dude made is crazy he straight up just like um his girlfriend at the time but like a long time girlfriend he straight up like planned for her to, he she went on a vacation he collected he never told her anything to keep her out of danger um collected he like he would, he told all like the the part where he actually collects all the data to like to take down the CIA sort of. Um, he would like he had these strategies of playing with a Rubik's cube in order to like gain people's trust, like the guards, like because he always a cool conversation starter. But he would be like have a chip like in his like underneath his tongue, like a, a hard drive. No, sorry, uh, um, flash drive. No, sorry, SD card. He would have a micro SD card underneath his tongue as he was just vibing with these security guards that like if they found him he's like i don't know if i would have made it out alive and like and then he like did all this encryption stuff and he fled to uh, hong kong and then broke all this stuff and like the the he left everything everything in order to make this because he was just convicted over the years that like because he, he was miserable just learning all this information knowing how horrible this was and never never making it public until he's like i have to tell the world about this crazy story um just yeah that's a thing one of those biographies of a very impressive person i heard him on rogan first um and wildly articulate dude like very poetic how do you get on rogan uh, i mean zoomed in one of oh, okay. one of the few zoom zoom ones that that uh, joe rogan's done but anyways wow really good Okay, guys, I just remembered a book I forgot to write down. Nice. Um, anyways, so I got, still have two left. Uh, Valley of Vision by the Puritans. This is a daily devotional I did throughout the year. I really, loads of people know about this. It's an amazing devotional prayer book. So big recommend. Just, it's actually one thought from it. They pray so differently than I normally would pray. So it's a very good, it's been a good exercise for me to pray through their words and then i also take notes along the sides mm -hmm. of their prayers kind of like either building on it or just being like i was convicted of this as i prayed through it yeah. even just the language they use 
it's a very different language. So I, I would just encourage people to use old prayer books occasionally too. Yeah. And not let the these and the thous kind of screw you over. Like I just try to like look past that, even though that that's a bit different than I'm used to. All right. My last book, um, A Philosophical Inquiry into the Sublime and the Beautiful by Edmund Burke. Um, this was the last book I read. And I it's the second book by Edmund Burke that I've attempted. Uh, the first one was Reflections on the Revolution in France, um, which I have yet to finish. I'll probably still finish it. This was a great book. He... He attempts to discuss what makes things sublime and what makes things beautiful. And he goes into it. It's an, inqu- it's an inquiry. So he goes into it saying, I'm not going to have all the answers here. I'm not going to be able to like perfectly make a science of what counts as beautiful. Uh, but he says that, but he starts by rejecting the idea that these things are strictly subjective. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, he makes a pretty good point. He says that the, uh, you know, with stuff that we comes down to like really just bare rational thought. Things were like, no, this is not, this is an objective issue. He says, we have less consensus about those strictly rational issues than we do about what is beautiful and what is not. Well, he says, if like, if, like, if, a, <laughs> okay, if, if Chloe walked in the door right now, all four of us would unanimously say that is a very beautiful woman. Mm-hmm. I'm looking right at you, Jesse. Right? Right? Yep. If anyone, if John Michael walked into any room anywhere, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> why does this always come up? <laughs> no, but like, but he was okay. A, a flower, a rose. There's significantly more consensus that a rose is beautiful than about any question that is strictly objective and rational. The human wow. beings ponder, <clears throat> and so he says, "How can we suggest that this is something that's completely random? Everyone has their own impression of what beauty is. It's completely subjective. There's no solid foundational mm-hmm. principles that guide this. When we see such radically high rates of consensus among people, mm-hmm. and he's writing this in the uh, early 1700s when he was in his 20s, he, it is an incredible. Like, the guy was clearly a genius." Uh, he goes on to make some some more really really interesting points. Um, the book has some like low points. There are there are things in it where I'm like ah, I, I think you're overextending here or you're. Uh, but he he goes into things that like so the, one idea at the time and that you still run into is that things that we find attractive, especially when it comes to in in people, um, has to do with good proportions. Mm-hmm. You, and you've probably heard that suggested like that's. It's, 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 yeah, the golden ratio principle. And he addresses golden ratio principle directly. The idea that, like, this, the height of a man is, you know, something that they use for determining just how tall a building should be and stuff like this, right? The idea that there's golden ratio, then you have, you have the, you know, the man like this, like the Da Vinci dude, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, he, he goes into, like, and he rejects a lot of the ideas about proportion dictating beauty. Um, he has a lot of really, really interesting ideas about the sublime, and he starts there by talking about, in terms of differentiating between the sublime and the beautiful, in terms of talking about the difference between pain and pleasure. And for him, sublime is this sort of body of admiration and attraction we feel for things that, that are deriving themselves out of experience of positive pain, and beauty is things out of positive uh, pleasure. 
and it's incredibly interesting. But Wait, so would would like would like the feeling after you work out really hard? Would that be sublime? I feel sublime. I because I, I I vaguely knew that the word sublime is positive. I hear people say it jokingly. I've never known what the actual so full definition of the word in, is. In the sense that he's using it is a kind of a, almost archaic sense or at least very niche sense um something that uh, we had a couple points that actually really helped me to understand why you and i could read east of eden and be like this is a beautiful book oh okay so you're reading east of eden you're like and i've had this conversation the bible is sublime the bible is sublime right and you'll you'll read things where you'll be like okay i had this conversation with someone about you know watching this show or, or this movie where i'm like no you have to understand it's a great work of art and they're like it's got so much violence and stuff in it how can you say that that's a great work of art and that you enjoy watching it like like that's just wrong right um and i I didn't have words for it but edmund burke would have and that is that he's like it's not that you think that there's something beautiful about the violence and the darkness and these moments of intensity it's that there's something sublime about them and you you have these moments of almost experiencing fear and horror and dread but in an attractive way and it's so interesting okay see that was what i was gonna say is it's hard to pick beauty when there isn't as much consent so does he say that sublimeness is harder to pinned down because i would think there might be less consensus there i would say that he did a much better job pinning down uh the sublime than he did pinning down the beautiful well i believe that you can define it more easily but i would think that it's harder to take a th- an isolated incident and have enough people agree on it being sublime possibly so especially based on what your proximity to it is which is something that he talks about as well so like if we saw an act of violence we might have a different attitude than if we were experiencing that act of violence right mm. um something interesting he talks about too is like he talks about like a painting and how or a sculpture and how realism is something that we're extremely attracted to so he said the first time someone sees a sculpture or the first time someone sees a painting um they're gonna be blown away and of course this is back in the day when there was significantly more artistic scarcity right so some some people could live and like not see a painting right Mm. some people could live and not see a sculpture of a man right of course we wouldn't even know what that feels like um, but he said, you, the first time someone comes up to a sculpture of a man, he said, it could be a pretty crude sculpture of a man, like not super well executed, and you'd be blown away, right? We, give, we even see that when we look at like old medieval paintings. We're like, how are you guys persuaded by this, right? But he says, as you get exposed to more and more realistic iterations, your appreciation changes, right? And, and he, he, he sort of talks about all of that. And then he talks about how our appreciation for a thing, be it sublime or beautiful. So one of the things is it'd be like a painting of, John the Baptist being beheaded or something like that. We'll be like, this is a remarkable painting. It's like, what are you looking at? It's like, well, this is sublime. It's it's magnificent. It, it makes us feel, it makes us, us feel small. It makes us, we're in the presence of this sort of towering darkness and strength and power. He talks about how wolves are more sublime than dogs and things like this. It's, it's, it's really, really interesting. But he talks about it in that same sense that a really realistic portrayal of a sublime thing um, can be something like the beheading of John the Baptist or a sculpture of a monster, but it can also be like a story that talks about uh, and, and communicates to us emotions, like the passions, like fear, frustration, anger, and or, or love or something like that. And that's when I started thinking, oh man, this guy is like explaining why East of Eden or, or any of these other books we've been talking about that are hard but incredibly important yeah. um, are, are so attractive to us. Mm-hmm. 
Um, there, like I said, there's some low points in the book. And for me, actually, some of his discussion of trying to quantify beauty was where he clearly was not on really solid footing. Um, and and there are some low points and there's some stuff in there where you'll be like, oh, okay, this was clearly written in the early 1700s just based on like the way you're talking about things or the like, some cultural references and some stuff you'll just disagree with too. But it is a really, really interesting book. Wow. Yeah. What's it called again? Uh, a philosophical inquiry into the sublime and the beautiful. By Ben Burke, he's just also a remarkable writer. No, yeah. cool. I'm done. <clears throat> That's it. There you go, man. Um, second to last book for me. So we're timing these pretty decently. The Bomber Mafia by Malcolm Gladwell, and this is a really great book. Basically, it is a story. Again, Malcolm Gladwell first did it as an audiobook. Um, so it's got a lot of like recordings and stuff. It is the story of the evolution of bombing in World War II. And specifically, it, it's kind of a it's, a, it's a, it's a dialogue between two different schools of thought with bombing. Precision bombing versus like um, just aerial bombing at large. And the precision bombing school used these instruments that were developed by a guy who was a devout Christian who really believed that precision bombing was a more effective way to do war because you were minimizing casualties and it's just just really interesting goes into that but ultimately um ultimately you know the frustration of the war especially the american war against japan and the the fact that precision bombing wasn't quite up to par yet led them to abandon precision bombing even really as an option and this near the end of the book Gladwell talks about how they developed napalm in Harvard actually developed napalm. Super interesting. And napalm is insane. It like as a, it's like this burning gunk that once it goes off, just almost doesn't go out. And it talks about how they napalmed Tokyo, how the, the, the American forces napalm Tokyo and burned like 70% of the city. And what I was thinking of is really interesting because I was I was listening to this that moment right as it was Sunday. Remember when we went on that hike on Sunday, Jess? Mm-hmm. And I was going down the hill and I could look out at Hamilton as he was narrating what that they that they they the, the, the fire hit a critical mass where its own energy started creating like firestorms, mm. and like seventy percent of the city was torched to the ground and they killed over a hundred thousand people in tokyo with this napalm fire so they bombed for six hours they dropped i don't need, i can't even remember how many megatons of napalm and i just looked and i just kind of had a quick vision of like most of hamilton burning and i was like just hit with how horrible war was is and then they proceeded to do that to over 60 cities in Japan in wow. order. So basically one of the big thing, one of the things they said is like oh, the atom bombs, like, I mean, do, I really want to read a history of the atom bomb and the, the, the hydrogen bombs we dropped, we created and dropped on Japan. But one of the points that Malcolm Gladwell makes is the atom bombs were the period at the end of a sentence of devastation that had been going on for the preceding year or so of them firebombing the cities the atom bombs almost weren't necessary because how much devastation Napalm was doing over, over Japan. And one of the things that was really interesting to me is 
Glad Gladwell does this really interesting pivot at the book right there, where he all of a sudden really myopically brings you into a couple stories of Japanese women who would tell you stories of like them running out of their houses, throwing their kids over their back and just running and running and running away and then looking, then pulling their kid over to realize their kid's on fire. And just these dark stories of just war. People died. Civilians died. And I was just, it was horrifying. But this is what we did. This is what America did, right? Mm -hmm. And I was kind of thinking like, you know, I, I just, this is, this maybe is, I went back a little bit. All of a sudden, like kind of pulled a thousand back and I was thinking about how we all kind of like the cops and robbers as kids, you know, gun, pew, pew, like I get that. I love the idea. We watched Top Gun. Top Gun is awesome. Like it's, it's such a cool movie. But then I'm all of a sudden really like play out that for a second. Top Gun, planes with guns to shoot, to kill, to drop bombs. Like you start going like, and then I was also like, why am I, why am I fascinated with this? Why can I so easily envision myself as a soldier shooting down people? Why can I envision myself dropping bombs, like all this stuff? And yeah, I want to kind of clean that up by saying, by immediately tagging myself with an even-handed opponent and it's like a battle of wills, but but I also like the power. And I started thinking about some of my, my I have some Mennonite pacifist friends uh, at Southern. And I wonder if, they have an inkling into part of the heart of Christ, of pacifism, that in my kind of machismo love of, just the casual love of world war, of, of war, of in the sense of like, I like learning about it, it's cool to learn all these things, and that is just so wrong. Like it's maybe, maybe I don't know, I'm just thinking out loud a little bit, but maybe it's just so wrong for us to enjoy some of these like displays of might and power. Because if we actually followed through what that's for, it's just devastation. I don't know exactly. I don't. I'm not. I'm not making a case. Like I'm not making a, a point. Really. I'm just. It just caused me to really think. Because when I actually started thinking about what it meant for the Allied forces to decimate cities, and the families that were killed, and the graves of loved ones, it's like, man, man, like Lord Jesus, come soon, like. Mm -hmm. That's just horrifying. And then I just kind of, I forgot like, hey, you know, by the way, World War One, World War Two, two times the world was at war. That was insane. That happened. Like, I just sort of like almost hit me that that was a thing that I'm so, I so casually just know of these two events, but like actually let that sink that for a period of time, most of the world was wrapped up in killing each other. Dude. Yeah. Just, I don't know. It's crazy. Heavy. So have you has anyone here listened to Dan Carlin's like long form podcast? Yeah, yeah. So have you heard? Obviously. Yeah, have you heard any of his stuff on like the the atom bombs? No. So he has a couple. His most recent one that's super relevant to what you just discussed um, was the last part of his um, four part I think series on Japan's involvement in uh, the world wars. Okay. Actually, Japan's emergence from the Tokugawa shogunate and all the way up through World War II to the dropping of the A-bomb. Um, it's called Supernova in the East. The yep. last episode, they're really hard to listen to. They're absurdly violent. Um, but he does a very similar thing. And he talks, <clears throat> he'll he'll take you to this super aerial view where he's talking about the war and the Pacific theater and all this other stuff. And he'll zoom in on some just heartbreaking story about a mother who's trying to take her daughter out and she can see her daughter, but the napalm is just spreading and there's no way she can get her daughter out. And she can't, 
so she actually has to say goodbye to her daughter and leave her daughter trapped but alive and go sprinting on via like, i'm so sorry i am too weak to stay and just go running off like it's actually heartbreaking stuff but the yeah and dan carlin talks about this too he's like we like look at the the a-bombs and like oh that was terrible the thing that we did there and he's like that's not even close to what preceded it yeah right the the the, the firebombing and the firebombing was even more just involved than just having napalm right they had a whole sort of a a regiment of, of bombs that they would drop in layers so you'd like uh you would drop regular and uh explosive bombs they would you know wreck everything shake everything up and then they would coat it in napalm so that you couldn't try to get survivors or anything like that out uh and you just so then all of a sudden you'd have all these wrecked buildings all these massive holes and just then you'd coat it in burning goop it was just actually and, and the firestorms were so bad it was almost like having like these little hurricanes in the in the middle of these cities they were just super heated people were running into buildings that were not on fire and then getting baked inside because the firestorms are so hot it's crazy but yeah the dan carlin episodes on that are yeah. hard to listen to but really interesting to get that perspective as well yeah last one Jeff. yeah i got one more after that uh the great divorce by c.s lewis <laughs> book about heaven is this your first time reading it it is really, really? tell me what you thought of it this is one of my favorite oh actually i'm just not talking this this was one of those things that's like always heard about how great it is just for whatever reason didn't get to it this made it to my top 10 i have to listen wow. to it again to make sure but like i was just moved throughout this book right so good like yeah so quintessential c.s lewis too like it's just yeah. like i loved it so much Dude, those so pages wonderful. of of the queen of heaven like walking through where, where he asks <sighs> george like who, who was that and he's like oh you would have never heard of her she yeah. lived and she was a she loved men not in a way to lead them astray but in a way to make them love their wives more mm. as like dude oh, there's there's so many characters that I was like I see myself in that both good and bad and like <clears throat> it really challenged me to be like what are you focusing on like mm. even stuff like okay you're doing all these things to like pursue God's kingdom hopefully build God's kingdom and even just challenging some of those ideas, like, are you pursuing character? Do you love yeah. Do you love God? Do you love people? And kind of making that the orientation of, I don't know, it's so good, so convicting, and made me very excited for to either die or have Christ return. For anyone who's not aware, the basic premise is that there's this bus full of people driving or flying or whatever to heaven, uh, but as they begin their journey uh, through all sorts of cool symbolism, people continue to get off and decide to not continue on the journey. Um, and pretty much every character is wildly fascinating and very well developed, even though it's a very, very, very short book, like three hours or less. Yeah. All right. Last book for me of the year. Um, under the Streets of Nice, Ken Follett and Rene Louis Maurice. Maurice. Um, story of the biggest bank robber ever, or bank robbery ever. Um, and it's a, it is really cool. It's just a story of, uh, it's, it's in Nice, uh, in, in uh, France. 
And yeah, it's just the story of a guy who robbed the bank. And it's really cool. Just goes through that. It's really, it's honestly not that complicated. It's that kind of thing fascinates you. It's pretty cool. He ended up escaping, which is hilarious. And uh, yeah, that's about that. He was kind of like a hero of the of the French for a while because he was just kind of this like uh, flamboyant guy who just was constantly eluding the police and Loki. Everyone was kind of rooting for him. And it's just, it's just giggles. So um, <clears throat> we can do top three quickly if you guys are thinking um i don't really have my top three off the top of my head to be honest with you so i'm fine if not going uh, one thing i would like to know though do you guys think your reading do you, do you intend to make any difference in your reading patterns in 2023 huh. good question i <clears throat> if you want to I'll, I'll go first if you're chewing yeah do it one of the things that i i, I had a I had a number a book number that i wanted to hit this year i hit it I'm glad I hit it. I feel I feel pretty tickled about it. I feel pretty stoked about Wait, it. Wait, what was the number? Whatever. Oh, sorry. So people can count it out if they want to. Um, but I I made I, kind of midway through getting that last like kind of at the seventy five percent mark. I just I was like picking books that weren't too long so I could knock them out quick, and then I feel guilty, and so I make sure I pick a nice thick like you know, hundred or a nice thick, like 450 pager to make sure I'm getting my good reps in. And then I also knock out a few quick ones and it became book book length became if book length at all is a concern, I'm kind of annoyed, but it became way too much of a concern because I really wanted to tap that, that goal. So I just made like a radical conviction that I will not with at all, even think about book length as a marker of what I want to read for this next year. I don't care. I'm ready to launch into some 300 or to launch into some 35 hour biographies, that are like queued up for the beginning of January and I'm just not going to give give a heck. So, because I, not that I regret that. I like, I like, there's a time for a place for, for volume, but I just want to not make that, not make that for the next few years, if that makes sense. Cool. That's made the main one thing. Other than that, I've actually been looking through and I'm really happy with the diversity of books. Some old ones, some historical, a lot of biographies, some Christian. I feel pretty, I feel pretty good about the, the broadness of it. And I think I'm still, in a place for the next few years where just this mad scattering of broad topics is still good for me to to read i don't i don't think i need to buckle down into any one topic yet because i still think there's massive holes in my understanding of the world that i'd like to just slowly kind of fill here and there if i can one takeaway for me real quick is i didn't read nearly as many biographies or autobiographies um just or true stories as i wanted to and for whatever reason, I just don't gravitate to those books. Um, and I think that's a deficiency that I want to work on. So I, I have a bunch of recommendations now from here and, uh, we'll probably do that. Yeah. I actually feel great about the ratio of things I read and I enjoyed it all. And it was informative. I would I think I'd maybe just even read a few more biographies. I just want to read one Russian novel next year. That's a goal. Yeah. And I'm, other than that, I'm good. Don't read it. No, I don't think that I've kind of already taken away. That's not the first one I should read. Mike is somewhere being devastated. Well, he's he probably would agree because he wouldn't want the bar to be raised so high that I could like never read another one. He, like <laughs> true, true. He's no wise. matter how you look at it, it's not the first one. <laughs> Jesse just rents a cabin for a week, basking in the glory of Anna Karenina. I can never read another Russian book. or any book in general. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> so I don't have any particular like uh, specific strategy shifts, except I do have a couple like uh, poorly formed ideas. One of them being 
um, that I, I have this idea that I want to like read the entire sort of bibliography of a couple of my favorite writers. Hmm. So hmm. Um, I was just, I was, it's, you said bibliography. Is that, is that our use of that word? I think so. Can you, can you say that to be like all the like books a, that they wrote? A corpus of their work. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Cool. I, I think discography is a thing for musicians, so sure. it, it would follow that. It's also like at the end of like an academic work, obviously it's the, the stuff that you reference in the academic work, right? Sure. But I think it can also refer to the books that a person wrote during their lifetime. Okay. Yeah. I guess it's a list of books, so if it's somebody's bibliography, it's their list. I don't know. Yeah, I think so. If I'm using that wrong, please forgive me, listening audience. Anyway, so... Uh, <laughs> Um, so yeah, going through the entire bibliography of people I really enjoy. So like read everything C.S. Lewis wrote or read everything G.K. Chesterton wrote, you know, that do that kind of thing. I don't know if I'll actually do that, but I've also, I'm also kind of tempted to, I mean, John Michael sitting over there almost having finished Tolstoy. Uh, I've read, you know, Jane Austen in that way. Mm. Um, and I, maybe Elizabeth Gaskell, but she wrote so much more than Jane Austen. My goodness. Anyway, uh, there's that, but there's also something that I discovered, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, guys, as a reading technique in November. I read a couple books this way, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on it, um, where I got the physical book and the audio book mm. and read them simultaneously, uh, and it's incredibly cool. I love it. You can So, first of all, I am a very easily distracted person, so when I am... Uh, reading a heart, uh, physical copy book, or when I'm listening to an audiobook, I can be distracted from either medium, yeah. right? Uh, if it's an audiobook, that means that I'll have little holes, even if they're only for like a split second, uh, you know, I'll have little holes in terms of my intake. Uh, and for physical copies, I probably won't have those holes, but it will take me significantly longer because I'll have these random deviations of thought that I have to go back and reread that paragraph and then pick up where I left oh. off, right? And so when you're doing this though, uh, you don't have those any breaks in focus. You've got the reader who's keeping you on point. And I was talking to someone about this, and they're like, that sounds like the most joyless way to read a book. Um, what? <laughs> no, but like I actually <laughs> deeply loved it. I, I stayed on task. Yeah. Um, I had an incredible absorption rate. And I was I was actually taking notes. And the beauty of it is, you know, when the big faults of an audiobook alone, it's more expensive because you have to get like an audiobook and a physical book. <laughs> but I also use like the library for yeah. my audiobooks on on my browser, so I can do that, and that's free. But the absorption rate is fantastic. And the big complaint with audiobooks is you can't very readily go back and reread and mull over and meditate a paragraph, mm. right? But with this, you can. You hit pause on the audio and then reread that paragraph all you want. Meditate on the idea all you want. Write down a note, which I frequently do, little sticky notes mm -hmm. in these books, and then hit play. And then boom. And because I'm normally with an audiobook, I can only listen like tops, two times speed. Okay. Right? But when you're doing it this way, because I'm tracking the physical words with my eyes, and I can track words and ideas significantly faster. So I'm able to listen through these books at three times or more. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I mean, that would make sense. Yeah. So I, I found out the other day. You're selling me on this. I found out the other day that like mo most people, like a lot of people actually apparently read at about the rate they talk, which I was like kind of surprised. I was, I don't know, I didn't realize that. And so like I read probably three or four times as fast as I can speak. I'd say it's about, that's where I'm, I'm at, for me at least. So the idea of doing that sounds kind of horrifying to me because I feel like a voice in my head is going like, and I feel like I get irritated by that pretty quickly. I, I get that. You're a faster reader than I am by default uh -huh. um, in terms of like hard copy reading. 
Um, I definitely read significantly faster than I right, can talk, right. or maybe than I usually talk. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but no, I I don't mind it at all. The absorption rate is so high. Like okay. I feel like I and one of the books I read was a little bit more complicated, mm-hmm. um, and still, like this method worked so well. Again, you hit pause, and you. And I was listening to it on my computer while I had the book out, so yeah. I just had the space bar. And if I feel like, oh, I didn't really get that paragraph, boom, space bar, read it as many times as I want. Think through the concept. Do that thing, you know, when you're reading a book and you really want to like achieve higher absorption and you try to explain it to somebody else yeah, yeah. in a hypothetical conversation, right? I can do all of that great stuff and then hit play and boom, back into it. Mm-hmm. It is the best. I did it once this year and I really enjoyed it, but I did it at two times speed. So maybe I okay. could maybe I could push myself. And gradually do it, right? Yeah. Right. Gradually I'm a very it. slow reader. Okay. Like I think I'm slower reader than the national average. The one, the one lover of the Russian literature in the room is like, I'm a really slow reader. That's well. It, what's interesting <laughs> your is your life Jake must and, suck. Yeah. <laughs> Jake and I did some some math of like what the national. Uh, how did we do that again? Like it was the, the national average or something like that, and you were like significantly over, and I was like just below. Like for whatever reason, I'm, I think I'm like three times as fast as the average person is reading. Which so is, I, I get I, that's not a flex. I didn't do anything for that. I, I just so but it, it I, is. I feel like I'm a practiced reader in some <laughs> ways. Like I feel like I might be able to qualify yeah. for that, and I'm still a very slow reader. Yeah, you know what's one thing too. I I think it, I don't know. Maybe it's helpful. Maybe it's helpful for people to know that, Jem, because like you you've said that for a long time. It's born out true. It just takes you a while to crack through books. Um, because that's helpful to know that like you don't have to be a superhero to read a bunch of books. If that makes sense. Because one of the things, too, I still struggle with sitting down and reading a book. Mm. Like, I get distracted easily. Like, especially if it's a book I'm not passionate about at that moment or whatever. To sit down and crack it open and go, eh, and you hum ha for a little bit. And you only read, like, four pages. And you go, I don't know, it could be doing something else. So, it's like, it's still a fight sometimes for the discipline to actually sit down and read a book. Um, once I get into a book, I can I can get a good, get a, get a good clip going. But... Yeah, I don't know. I, I still fight that battle uh, pretty regularly with, with physical copies. Yeah. Guys, this was a really good time. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have anything else you want to talk I about. I but... love to do quick top three. And okay. Whoever knows them can go first. Yeah, yeah. I, I can do mine. Um, my top three from this semester was um, Gladys Allward. Again, not necessarily the version I read, but but it still was a top three. Um, World War Z and Humans. Yeah. Um, humans Uh, all three of them were beautiful and sublime they had moments of beauty and moments of sublimeness and uh, also caveats that all of them contained scenes of violence and descriptions of sexual abuse Jem do you have yours? I'm thinking about it right now I I, I don't know exactly which ones Um, I would say The Martian is a great piece of fiction. It's just so enjoyable. I feel like it's a great one you could listen to with a spouse or something. Again, a little language warning, but it, it does fit the context of what's going on in the story. The other two books are, I, again, I cannot recommend enough. What is a Girl Worth by Rachel Den Hollander? I, I just, Owen's given, given a fist bump for that. All of us have said this over and over. Please give that book a read. Please bump it up. Especially guys. Guys, please read the book. Just please read the book, and then I would I would follow that up with um, the body keeps the score, uh, Bessel van der Klok. You're taking my time. No, you can you can take it too. I again, these are hard. Body keeps the score is not not a Christian book by any stretch of the imagination, but 
it will grow your awareness of an area that I, I was never I never grew up thinking that way thinking that someone's trauma could affect their body and health problems like I, I didn't have that as a lens it, this is a good book to really get that get mm-hmm. that lens in you and just broaden your broaden your awareness just a wee bit you know yeah my top three what does it go <clears throat> worth body keeps the score and the great divorce yeah totally um okay so for me uh, C.S. Lewis is on there as well. Surprised by joy. I just had to go through my list really quickly to figure out what I'm doing for the last... Top three for the last six months, right? Not for the year? Cool. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Surprised by joy by C.S. Lewis. Um, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Uh, and then Wives and Daughters by Elizabeth Gaskell. Wow. Yeah. And maybe Elizabeth Gaskell's in that number two position, actually. Yeah. Pretty high up there. I, I'm looking forward to reading this. Audiobook did Yep, yep, that's available. Yeah, I think it's actually free on Audible. So once again, that's the beauty of like classics and your relationship with an Audible subscription is that. Do you see your relationship with an Audible? Yeah, I most of them are free. Yeah. Jesse, that's it. That's it. That's all, folks. I did. I did mine. Oh, right, right, right. Any any parting reflections on reading or whatnot? We've gone on for a long time. Yeah, I know. I love you, boys. Yeah, but at six hours, what is another few minutes? Yeah. <laughs> hey, listen. I, maybe this is the sense, guys. We we enjoy doing this podcast so much, and I, I am, and I speak for all the guys here. So stoked that whoever you are, that you're listening, because um, it it makes me really happy when I hear like messages from people about stuff they liked or didn't like from the book podcast, things that they've read because of it, and just feedback in general so feel free to shoot us a message if you have any thoughts on this at all because this is fun for us and hopefully it's it's helpful or in- interesting at least for other people yeah some of the messages i've gotten from people saying that a book i recommended was impactful to them it's just so fun that, that's so fun it's like we're part of one huge book club thank you for listening to this podcast's conversation i really appreciate it if you enjoyed it consider subscribing and sharing and all that jazz it's immensely helpful I'm all about having meaningful, interesting conversations. So if you know of someone I should talk to, hit me up on Instagram at itsthevolk. Have a good one, guys.